This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, and welcome to the New European Podcast. My name is Richard Porry, and I'm joined by Steve Anglesey. Hello, Snowflakes. Hello, Richard. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? I'm doing good. What a week it's been. It has, yeah. A week of, another week of shame. <laughs> <laughs> week another week of, of shame yeah. on the yeah. international stage for Great Britain. I feel, Absol- I feel oh. wonderful. Where we have got start? good guests on, haven't we, this We've week? We've got some amazing guests. I'm so excited um, because one of the best rock and roll photographers, or music photographers perhaps is a better way to describe him, um, that ever walked the earth uh, is going to be on our podcast. That's Kevin Cummings, whose name I first sort of used to read in the NME. He was always, he was always him, and and the, the journalist I remember from that period was was uh, Johnny Cigarettes. Um, so a little bit of a, a boyhood uh, hero, and he's just uh, released an excellent book, which we'll tell you all about when when we get him on, and then. Um, and then we've got Deborah Mattinson talking to Matt Withers, um, and uh, she's written in the as is Kevin, in fact, in the New European Print Edition this week, um, and she's talking about the Red Wall and why Labour lost and all that kind of thing. And that might even be the title of her book. Um, so that will be. Well, I've Kevin first. We'll have Deborah a little bit later. We will have a Brexit series of the week, of course, uh, towards the end of the show. Um, we'll do the news first. If you only get your news from us, meh, I mean. Check out at least the new European uh, website as well, which is new, upgraded, and utterly superb now. Super quick, looks great. We've done a great job. Um, because there is still stuff going on. Um, what, what, I got a message this morning about maybe a tra- traffic light system for local lockdowns, just to add another layer of rules oh, okay. and confusion there, Steve. I don't know if you've heard that one. 
Um, no, I haven't. But condolences to um, to or commiserations rather to 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 people who are are in the new uh, who who's in it Liverpool, yeah. Middlesbrough. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's different levels of lockdown across great swathes of the country. No one really knows what's happening, do they? Including the Prime Minister, obviously. Well, quite. I mean, there's huge confusion. All my family are up in, pretty much all my family um, are up in in West Yorkshire. And, you know, one family grouping think one thing is allowed, another thing another. And uh, it's it's fairly chaotic, to be honest. And I don't, I'm not there on the ground. And we're very lucky out here in in the east of England that we're, you know, we are as, as free as we can be um, during this, during this period. But uh, there's a lot of confusion. And I think a lot of people have just sort of gone, I, we, I just can't follow this and are pretty much getting on with life as they were, um, which is the great concern about getting your messaging wrong. Isn't it, Steve? It is. Yeah. I saw a, um, I saw a, 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 well, I think it's a, a sort of a metaphor for, for, for what has happened to, <laughs> To the Prime Minister when I was driving back to East Anglia um, last Saturday and there's a there's a place called you'll know it a place called Barton Mills yeah um, it's um, it's on the A11 isn't it it's in Suffolk and there's it a, is, it's, yeah. a little, it's a little village and it's just the, it, it's there's a big roundabout near Barton Mills I think which has got McDonald's on and stuff like that if you've yep, been I on the A11 well, yeah. You might have, you you might have been there. Uh, this is turning a bit sort of partridge esque. I've been pump, anyway, I've been pumpkin picking nearby actually. Pumpkin picking nearby yeah, Mills, yeah. 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 And and uh, every time you drive past this, um, this this place, there is there's been a sort of bo- homemade Boris for PM billboard, which emerged sort of just before the general election last December, mm-hmm. and somebody's obviously somebody's obviously you know stuck this in a in a field on one of those sort of A-frame billboard things, uh, and you could see it from both sides, you know, when you were going um, north or, or or south, and um, that seems to have gone um, now, and it's been replaced with a new advert which says "Prime Evil Screaming Won't Help." <laughs> And that is just how the sort of the you know it'll be. Don't worry, it'll be all right. We'll get Brexit done. Um, that that just seems to be how it's it's gone in the last year or so. Um, well, that's some turnaround, isn't it? <laughs> it is, you know. And I think it's. I mean, we we'll, we will talk about Europe and uh, who are now uh, now preparing to uh, take legal action against us, aren't they? The, the the EU Commission over the the withdrawal agreement, attempting to rewrite the withdrawal agreement. We can talk about all that. A bit later on but it does seem that as well as the really ham-fisted response to covid that the tide is beginning to turn on brexit too as the end of the transition period gets nearer more and more warnings of chaos and uh you will have seen and i know you listeners will have also seen the the yougov poll in the times which showed that 50 percent agree now that in hindsight britain was wrong to vote to leave the european union only 39 percent still back in the decision it's a record lead for wrong over right big shift from 48 wrong 43 right uh, when you go ask the same question a month earlier and um it just seems to go from bad to worse we seem to say this every week don't we what about Pretty Patel's big idea this week? Oh my God, this is it! I, I, honestly, I had to check the calendar when I saw this. It's ex- extraordinary that this was even considered. Um, why don't you just why don't you just go, why don't you just explain it before I so I can contain my shock? Well, there's there was a proposal 
um, that was asked by Pretty Patel's office to be worked up, which was to send asylum seekers for processing on Ascension Island or St. Helena. Now, Ascension Island is four and a half thousand miles away, uh, 7,000 kilometres away from the UK. St. Helena is even further. It's um, 5,000 miles away, 9,000 kilometres away from the UK. And the idea was that people who were picked up in migrant boats crossing the channel would be sent all that way for processing. Um, then there was another uh, report about the same thing. The, the Financial Times reported that blue sky thinking sessions were, were held on how we could uh, repel these people. Obviously, you know, we are, in terms of per head of population, we've, our burden on this is, is much less than than uh, other countries. Um, the Financial Times report said that the, that Pretty Patel's officials had held blue sky thinking sessions uh, to suggest ways to repel these people, and they included the idea of fitting uh, vessels with pumps that could generate waves to force the dinghies back into French waters. Um, and uh, it, it's just uh, that was that was ruled out by the way when it, it was pointed out that that would capsize um, the dinghies and people would drown. Even even Pretty Patel and, and her officials realised that that was a bad idea. Uh, there were all sorts of other ideas, weren't there? Forming a big line of boats across the channel. I'm sure that'll work, and uh, and various other lunatic schemes. What do you make of all of this? Well, I think. <laughs> It's just, I mean, aside from it being completely acme nonsense, yes, um, it is just utterly depressing that we would ever consider something as inhumane and as immoral. Um, and I remember speaking, maybe not last week, the week before, about how, you know, I'm not proud of being British or whatever, but I do expect, you know, high standards from my country. And the fact that it was even considered is utterly disgusting the fact that anyone even went yeah we could take that to a meeting i think he's very telling of where we've got to uh, with this government and um i don't know i just find it utterly depressing utterly depressing um that that, that, that these people who are you know by and large desperate um and you know ship them off to an island i mean what it's medieval. Um, it it, it certainly just... is, especially since such a high percentage of them appear to have legitimate claims for asylum or, you know, it takes quite a while for the, the um, appeal process to uh, to be exhausted. But, uh, yeah, it, 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 does seem, uh, it does seem particularly, I mean, you know, some credit for, for Pretty Patel for discovering an idea so stupid and offensive that even she can't go ahead with it. But uh... yeah, but do you know what? I didn't like some of the quotes. The quotes from a spokesperson or a spokesman or whatever in in the piece that I saw with regard to this didn't say this will never ever happen. This will this was a complete you know this was a bad idea that was completely shot. It was, we will consider all options when trying to solve the migrant problem. You know, that, that in itself suggests to me that there might have been some chin stroking with regards to this, this idea. You know what I mean? The fact yeah. that anyone could even, the fact that anyone, anyone at all connected to government, external or internal, brought this idea to a minister absolutely fills me with horror. 
that they could even yeah, that could, yeah all right yeah i'm happy to go to that meeting with you know we all go to meetings with ideas not all of them get to the meeting how this one even got from someone's head onto a notepad is beyond me how that person then wasn't ordered to leave immediately and never come back i mean i just i think i, I it's just utterly depressing utterly utterly depressing it does add to the um to the air of um well, the real, uh, the, the the foul air, the real stink around this government, and we will we will talk about uh, we will talk about that and and Boris Johnson uh, a bit later on in the podcast. I did want to mention the other big thing that happened this week, which is the first presidential debate. Um, and if you watched it, I mean, the bad news is that there are two more of those. It was a, it was awful, wasn't it? Um, I mean, I've in, never seen um, anything quite. I've never seen anything quite like it, and. I think it it pretty much at this stage goes without saying that Donald Trump is is a uh, dangerous um, man who should have no power whatsoever. Um, he's self obsessed. He is um, he empowers completely the wrong sort of people. Um, I, I'd like to think that it's stupidity rather than intelligence that empowers those people. Um, but, yeah. but I can't be absolutely sure. I think that probably is the case. Um, it was a level of heckling that I think you you know you you, you see only at a sort of one a.m. show in a small club in, 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 during the Edinburgh Festival. If, if we ever have the Edinburgh Festival again, um, when um, when drunk people turn up and decide that they're funnier than the comedian that you paid to see. But the thing uh, as well, though, and I, and you know, I have got my fingers firmly crossed that Joe Biden wins. In November, of course, I think pretty much 100% of the listeners and readers in European would agree with us on that one. Um, but he's not a good candidate. I know there's this thing about, oh, he's a bridging candidate so the parties can Ooh. reboot and reset. It shouldn't be... It, 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 this election should already be won, and I honestly do not think it is. Biden did not have a good debate at all. He looks like... Uh, he just looks at sea... Um, He's just, if that's the best the Democrats can do, and I know, I, I listen, I get it, he's internationally known, he's seen as a safe pair of hands outside the US, et cetera, et cetera, got all that, fantastic. But he doesn't look like the next president of the United States to me. And, no, you know, we that... come from such a high watermark with Barack Obama, and I know that he do lots of things that, um, you know, he couldn't get done and didn't get done, et cetera, et cetera. No politician is perfect, but I think he was pretty good. Certainly, internationally, uh, I know he was liked around the world more than he was liked domestically. But if you go from that to, you know, and Hillary was a was a flawed candidate as well. That was a misstep. I just think, you know, where is and there is there is some younger talent in the Democrats. And I, I'm no expert on American politics, but there is some younger talent coming through. And I just think they might have been better taking a punt on that now rather than Biden because... Yeah, well, you know, I mean, he does say that he's only going to serve one term if he's elected Biden. I just wonder whether they... said that. Um, yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> I, I, I just wonder whether they set the bar too low for Biden and, and whether, the, um, whether the Trump thing of saying this guy is sleepy, he's on drugs, he doesn't know what day he is. And when it turned out i mean he actually got a couple of good licks in didn't he the yeah. um you know that the you wouldn't know the suburbs if you unless you drove through you know took the wrong turn in and drove through and by accident was was a good line that the the let you know this clown won't let me finish he was obviously planning to say that all along i thought he got a couple of good licks in there and i think 
maybe maybe the 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 Trumpists of maybe Trump with his desire to to you know to portray him as weak and old and doddery has um, set the bar far too low for him and just turning up and being able to string a sentence together made people go yeah all right I, I can I can vote for this guy um, yeah. and I think Trump maybe blew a chance to to by being too aggressive and by heckling I saw a lot of Republicans who said they would still vote for him but they were they, they thought he interrupted too much and and um, so it's it, it's interesting. I quite like the framing of um, sort of Ohio Joe against sort of Wall Street Donald yeah. as well. I know that's something that that they're really trying to push out, um, and I, I know that they're also speaking to a lot of former the Democrats are also speaking to a lot of former Trump voters who are saying, you know, it's okay to change your mind. You know, he promised big, he hasn't delivered. It's okay to change your mind, which I also think is is really important. Um, and I think that is good. That is good messaging. But do but st- you know I see I know the polling's looking good um, for Joe Biden, but I still I'm still worried. I'm still really concerned that it's going to be closer than everyone thinks. I wonder whether there's a lot of um, whether the pollers are dealing with shy Trumpers like you used to have, um, which I think we've all experienced in our in our lives a shy Trumper. Um, <laughs> um, but like you used to have shy Tories who who said no, I'm definitely voting Labour. And then, yeah, uh, my a, a friend of mine, friend of mine who lives out in Texas, who gives who, who sort of. Gives me the most of my American politics. Actually, he he sort of said, you know, there is a fear that um, even though people will be saying quietly, "Oh, Trump," you know, there's some sort of racist overtones, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. No one knows you're a racist in a in a in a polling booth. Mm-hmm. Um, I said, of course, you've got to remember to take the take the blanket and the pointy hat off. But you know, as long as you do that, it, it, that's that's absolutely right. And I guess that's the same thing, isn't it? Um, I don't know. I, I I you know I think. Trump's famous famously said, didn't he? If you if you say something, if you say something three times, people believe it, whether it's true or not. And that kind of worked for him last time. And I wouldn't, I honestly wouldn't be surprised if it works for him again. God, please, no. But you know, uh, yes, that's right. Um, that's right. I really enjoyed his thoughts on um, his thoughts on um, forest fires. Uh, yes. <laughs> Um, he said, as far as the fires are concerned, he said, I want crystal clean water and air. This was a question about his environmental policies. I want crystal clean water and air. I want beautiful clean air. As far as the fires are concerned, in Europe, they live, they have forest cities. They're called forest cities. They maintain their forest. They manage their forest. I was with the head of a major country. It's a forest city. He said, sir, we have trees that are far more, they ignite much easier than California. Do you think he's so, getting, do you think he's getting Nottingham Forest mixed up? Yeah. Maybe. And he think, you know what I mean? Because it's like the, the Manchester City, Bradford City, you know, Cardiff what City, Nottingham As- Forest City. I think he's seen the football results, final score on the old Vidi printer. And yeah. he's got mixed up, and he thinks Nottingham is a forest city. I'm wondering whether he has somebody in the, you know, when he's doing R and R in the White House, which is probably, I, I would imagine, from about nine a.m. To, to to ten p.m. I wonder whether he's watched Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and then Return of the Jedi, and he thinks that Europe yeah. is sort of like a yeah. a mix of um, a, a mix of uh, Sherwood Forest and Endor. 
and it's um, all the Ewoks. Yeah, there's e- there's Ewoks. I, I met with I met with Chief Chirper, the Ewok leader, and uh, and he said to me, "Sir, they, our trees ignite much easier than California." <laughs> anyway, um, maybe shall, so. Shall we um, shall we move on to um, the, the 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 sort of pressing issue of the week? Um, which is um, which is Boris Johnson. Um, there sure. seems to be a growing wave. Look, listen, there's there's something that happened to Boris Johnson this week. He was people said he was grossly incompetent. He he got his own government coronavirus rules wrong, didn't he? I can't remember where where was he visiting when he did that. Was it Newcastle or? Uh, yeah, he was up in the northeast. Yeah, he was in the northeast, wasn't he? He's was poking around his, his his lovely red wall, and um, and he he basically got the the rules wrong. He he said that you could still mix in. Did he say that you could still mix indoors, but you couldn't with more than six people, but you couldn't yeah. mix in hospitality or something like that? And people said, well, this guy doesn't even know his own rules, and it looks really bad. Um, and um, there's an awful lot of gossip about Boris Johnson on social media. I think there's probably more gossip about him than any other prime minister, even the one who was alleged to have had sex with a dead pig's head. But, you know, if you, if you, you know, if you look in on Twitter and various social media groups, there are all kinds of wild claims about Boris Johnson. And I'm, you know, I'm sure that I'm sure there would be anyway, given his, his kind of colorful personal life, but, the thing that seems to be going mainstream is this idea that he might still be ill and this might um and this might explain his poor performances in the commons although i thought mm. he was quite good against keir starmer at pmqs on Improved, wednesday certainly yeah. um and he did quite well there and he seemed to be bolstered in the, the press conference but he, he makes these mistakes and it's seeping into the mainstream now last week in in the new european um, Tim Walker, our, our gossip columnist, was talking about a visit by Boris to the tea rooms. Uh, he, what he said to a group of Tory backbenchers left them believing that he was basically, you know, he might be going once the transition period ends on January the 1st. There's a piece in, uh, there's been a lot of talk about whether he's got long COVID. Obviously, he was very ill um uh in the early summer uh there's a piece in tortoise uh the the sort of slow journalism site which speculates that you might have suffered a thing called silent hypoxia um which is when you've got a big reduction in your oxygen levels as low as 50 percent um but you appear to be conscious lucid some patients even on their phones while this is happening to them but but there is, you know, there's no sort of physical sign of having low oxygen levels, but you can obviously monitor it when you're on equipment and the, the virus is starving your body of oxygen. And we know what happens to the, the brain when it is starved of oxygen. And there's some some speculation that you might have suffered from this, as, as many other people do. Then we've got Alice Thompson in The Times, who was, quotes a family friend of Johnson saying, even now he's having good days and bad days. There's more in The Times. One source telling The Times he's pin sharp one day. Then you'll say to somebody, why have you not briefed me on this? And he'll be told, "You were, we told you that yesterday. The source told The Times that COVID is, personally, I think COVID has had a huge impact, definitely. And then we go back to August and a thing that was denied also from The Times at the time which was that um, 
somebody had gone to Chillingham Castle, Northumberland, started talking to the owner of that, who is uh, Humphrey Wakefield, Dominic Cummings, his father-in-law, and Humphrey Wakefield had said, well, the Prime Minister is still suffering the after-effects of coronavirus and is going to stand down in a few months' time. What are you hearing about this? Does any of this seem reasonable, plausible to you? Well, it seems like, um, as an aside, we've actually, not my team, but some of the journalists that I work with have actually been speaking to some some doctors uh, who believe they've got long COVID. And it does seem to be a thing, doesn't it? Um, that is that, that people who had it and had it bad um, are still, you know, still suffering the after effects. And that, that alone is a, is a, is a worry. And I guess we'll learn more about that as time goes by. Um, if, if Boris Johnson has got long COVID, and I don't know how you, don't know if you can test for it. I, you know, I, I don't know the science, but if if that is the case, then we do have to ask the question: if it's actually a good idea for him, firstly, uh, physically, um, to be prime minister, and we also have to ask if there's a if there is a through no fault of his own <laughs> on this particular one, a competency issue with who's running the country if they're not fit to do it. Um, that might sound a little bit brutal, but if he's not if he's not fit and healthy enough to do it, then you know, there's too much at stake, isn't there? Um, so I don't. I, I mean, I, I, I am. I am hearing the rumours like everyone else. Um, what I'm hearing from people who who are who are involved with Boris Johnson is, and this might just be, you know, I, I might not be getting the full story. But what they're saying is that they, you know, that they, they don't they don't believe that that is the case. They they feel that he is. He's recovered, and the, you know if there's any signs of mix-up or whatever, it's just that it, it, there's a heck of a lot going on, and he's a he's a human, and humans do make errors, and Boris Johnson makes more than most, I would suggest. Um, so it might just be that he was incompetent beforehand, <laughs> and we're just seeing incompetence. You know, um, I, I, I I don't know, I, I don't know, I. Is Boris the type of person who would really dig in and and even if he was really suffering physically and and see something through? He doesn't massively strike me as that sort of person. He, he more likely seems to be the person who goes, do you know what? I'm throwing in the towel because this is hard work. Yes. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm speculating. You know, there are, there are people um, I've certainly heard from uh, one person in another department who you know this these are murmurings that are coming from other departments as well and it might just a, a lot of the time i think and it might just be that they're pissed off with the the stuff that's coming out of number 10 um you know there's a lot of politicking that goes on a lot of um machiavellian stuff that goes on and it suits other departments for the prime minister not to be on on his game um yes. and be able to you know and 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 there's a stick to beat him with uh, so is he ill? Well, I don't know. I'll tell you something, though. I looked back. I was picking out some pictures um, of Boris Johnson this week for a piece where we were doing. And I, I needed a picture of him doing a certain thing. I found it because he's very uh, he's, he pulls all kinds of different faces. And I, But I had to go through a lot of the pictures from the last year. And I was looking back at the pictures of him in June. There was some in June. So he was kind of just back by then, wasn't he? And he looked awful 
truly looked like he was very, very ill. And then I looked back at the pictures of him, which we all know now, outside number 10, clapping just a few days before he, um, you know, he was he was diagnosed and hospitalized. And he looked awful then. And he doesn't look nearly as ill as that now. Um, but nonetheless, if this, you know, if this is a case of long COVID, then then I guess though that kind of that, you know, it might not be as obvious. Um I don't know. I guess he probably, you know, saying he still has his bad days. I think, you know, that it, it was a na- it was nasty. He was hospitalised. It was a nasty, a nasty bout of this virus. So I wouldn't be massively surprised about that. Um, and you know, I guess we, I, I guess we wait, I guess we wait and see. Well, we do. You know, I think there's something to these stories which have appeared in the last few weeks too, um, from friends of Boris Johnson or friends of Carrie Simons suggesting that, you know, they're, they're struggling to get by in their grace and favour uh, flat on £150,000 uh, a year and all of that. And um, there's certain- I mean, the thing is with that is, yeah, £150,000 is m- mad money for most normal people. Um, but, you know, I can I can, I can imagine but Boris Johnson's got maintenance for four kids at least, hasn't he? Yeah. He's got, you know, he's got, so, so that money will quickly go. And that, I can imagine that Boris Johnson is not used to living on, you know, what did he call his ter- telegraph column money? Was it peanuts or something like that? You know, and that was, that was almost That's double right. that 150. Well, I think he's not I a man who's used to living on a bread line and he's certainly not living on the bread line now, but you know, I can imagine him going, I am tired of this. Do I, I really need all this hassle? And I think, uh, I think you're right. I think um, he was earning, he's now earning 150,000. And I think with his MP's salary and his telegraph column alone, um, you know, without all the other stuff that that he might have done as more of a free agent, he was earning three hundred and twenty five thousand quid. Um, you know, if he bides his time, he'll be on the international lecture circuit um, soon, and then he can trouser everything he wants. Anyway, just needs to get um, a, he just needs to get an overdraft limit sorted out, and he'll be fine. He'll be fine. We do. We have Kevin Cummins is is, is joining us, which is, a, which is a, a, a great pleasure. Um, Kevin, are you there? I am, yes. Uh, my thought Steve was actually talking about his salary then, but um, I only came in at the end of that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and my grace and favour apartment is, is not to my liking, and I must move on. Uh, Kevin. Great um, and Frankie, more like. Kevin, exactly. Kevin will, will need no um, introduction if you, have, um, if you like uh, music. Um, if you don't... Um, well, we're going to talk about... Well, you might like great pictures. You don't have to necessarily like the music. You might like great pictures. Kevin Cummings, of course. Kevin, I've already... I'm a bit of a fanboy, Kevin, I'm afraid. So there's going to be a lot of fawning. Um, oh, God. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Um, I saw your book um, maybe a week ago, and I think it's absolutely stunning. So this is uh, when we were getting high, and it's and it, it basically uh, it focuses on the sort of Britpop years, um doesn't it and a lot of the pictures what people won't have seen before but a lot will so i was a i was in my sort of mid to late teens during that period so i you know i used to pore over these pictures in the enemy week in week out um so it's absolutely fabulous to 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 see them again and it's an absolute stunner of a book it is one of those ones that you you know will be on coffee tables for the rest of forever so before we start anything European listener, 
find this book and buy it and then buy it for someone else for Christmas because it truly is a work of absolute genius. So congratulations, Kevin. Thanks very much. And we've got loads of, lots of the pictures um, are in the current print edition of, uh, of the New European. Um, there's a piece with, uh, with you, Kevin, explaining why you are feeling slightly conflicted about the era. But I think we should probably start with, by thinking about the, the, the good stuff about, um, about Britpop and that whole era from when would you say from sort of 93 to yeah i think it was i think it was in its gestation period in 91 and then it was when select decided select magazine decided to drop um a union flag into the background on their cover of brett anderson which he's never really forgiven them for even though they no longer exist um and then it probably rolled on through the Vanity Fair Cool Britannia cover, which I'm guessing was sort of 95, 96 to, to, to maybe the sort of 98. What's, well, what... yeah, it's, it was limping along after Blair got his grubby hands on it. Yes, of course, of <laughs> course. What's, what are your sort of good memories of all of that? What, what's, what music do you think still, hand, hand, uh, still stands up, holds up? What are your... Well, memories favorite memories of all that period well i you know i like most of the bands actually and i like i enjoyed working with them um you know whatever i mean oasis divides people a lot really but i have to say that when those first two albums came out they were pretty much the soundtrack to everything you did in the uk at that time you know you'd go into shopping centres, pubs, bars, restaurants, everywhere, everywhere they were playing it. You'd go to the match, they were playing it on the tannoy before the game. Um, We'd go in a pub called the Gardener's Arms in Manchester before we went to see City and people had put the whole CD on in the pub. Um, You'd go in, I don't know, Paul Smith, you'd go in Topshop, you'd go anywhere and they were playing it. And it was remarkable. I don't think I've ever known a record um, that was just, um, you know, it was everywhere. It was, you know, and then I'd get in my daughter's, you know, go go and see if my daughter was doing her homework and she'd be playing it all the time as well. She still plays it in her car. (laughs) It was was extraordinary that. I I mean, I, so I was like, I was like, what's, 14 when definitely maybe came out i think and i think and it's that suede cover, the suede um select cover as well was a big moment because i think just at that moment in my in my life when i was starting to properly pay attention of what you know who the cool bands were and all that kind of thing it was all very much grunge nirvana very it seemed it seemed like it was all very american i remember a pal of mine had mtv and it was just you know, it was either wet, 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 and that bloody awful thing from Four Weddings, or it was, you know, Soundgarden on a van or whatever. And then, and then suddenly, there were some Northern lads, you know, like like us three, who were who were on the cover of the Enemy and who were doing interesting stuff. And it did. I, I understand how that sort of, um, I, I don't want to say patriotism because I hate that word, but how that sort of oh oh they they're talking about things that I understand. You know, Pulp were great for that talking about sort of northern stuff, sort of real everyday stuff. And then, like you say, it was everywhere. 
So I think there's an element of that why we all fell in love with it, Kevin. Do you do you agree? I agree, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, and Oasis knew how to play the game. I think it sort of, like everything it, in in um, pop culture, it tends to spiral out of control once the tabloids get hold of it. But while it was in the domain of the music press, um, they were having a great time and... They had a lot of swagger, and I think that helped. Um, you know, they weren't coy. Let's just say they weren't coy about um, their success. I mean, the first time I photographed Oasis was early 94, and I flew to Amsterdam to meet them, and they travelled overnight on a ferry. And when I got there, there was only Noel there, and I assumed the rest of them were still out from the night before, and he told me that they'd all had a fight on the ferry on the way over with some Chelsea fans and been deported. And um, I got Noel to come out, and we did a picture by the gig poster just so I could prove I'd actually gone to do my job um, <laughs> rather than blag it. And um, it was sort of, that was like, that was just uh, the start of it, really. And then, you know, we'd go, I'd go on tour with them and it'd just be carnage. I mean, they were, because they became successful so quickly, they were playing small, the venues were too small for them by April that year. And, um, you know, they were playing Portsmouth Wedgwood rooms, for instance, which is about the size of my sitting room. And it's it, it it was it was chaos, absolute chaos everywhere they went. It was great. It was really really good fun. Um, but you know, the music press like they always like a tag to hang things on. You know, they want they want that hook to hang um, a movement on. You know, you had grunge in America, and then we had Britpop, and we'd have baggy, and we'd have shoegazing, and we'd had whatever else you know and I think Britpop was it, it worked for a while I think but then it became Cool Britannia and then it became Lads and Ladettes and then it became the domain of Loaded magazine and then it sort of it started to get I felt a bit uncomfortable at times and that's what you've written about in the uh, in, in the article that accompanies these pictures in, in the New European print edition this week. And you're talking about being conflicted about it. And I mean, do you think that there is a you can draw a straight line from Britpop to Brexit? Um, <clears throat> I think no. I, I I think people are trying to, but I'm I'm not sure. I'm not really sure that you can. Um, but I do feel that, like I say, once they were, you know, I mean, youth culture move- movements are meant to be anti-establishment. And when you're turning up at number 10 um, and doing a bit of flag waving with Blair, I think it's it's a bit of an uneasy alliance. Um I think you know we've had twenty we've had twenty five years really since then, and I don't think uh, I don't think you can blame 
oasis and suede for Brexit. But I, I feel that it, there was definitely a mood change in the country towards the end of, towards the end of Britpop, definitely. I mean, there's, there's, um, there, you've interviewed some of the sort of the, the the key players in the book as well, which which are there are really good Q and A's that go alongside the the, uh, the the photographs, and there's people like Brett Anderson and Sonia uh, Madan from um, Echo Belly, and uh, of course Noel Gallagher. Um, Brett Anderson says Britpop's core he views Britpop's core politics as anachronistically patriarchal. This is a quote. As you probably, uh, as you can probably understand, I, I don't usually use terms like anachronistically <laughs> patriarchal in this podcast. Uh, but Britpop's core politics are anachronistically patriarchal and actually borderline toxic. Then you've got Martin Rossiter, uh, Martin Rossiter from Gene, who says, if you look at all the NME front covers for 1995, there were only ten that featured women, and only ten that included people of colour. Uh, I'm slightly ashamed that at the time I didn't see this for what it was, a return to a white male-dominated Britain. Is there is there truth in that? Uh, to a degree. I mean, without being massively controversial about this, I remember in the, uh, in the late 80s, we were told that the... Because I, I shot Public Enemy and Stevie Wonder for the Enemy cover. And... Um, there was always an issue with putting black artists on the cover at the time because we'd immediately drop about 20,000 copies um, because people, the, our readers wanted white male guitar bands. Yeah. And you were talking about the, the, the use of the union flag and how that enraged Brett Anderson when it was on Select magazine. I mean, it, it never seems to be wrapping your, yourself in the, the union flag never seems to end well for people like Morrissey. And it's really striking how few union flags there are in, in this book. I think there's only one in there, isn't it? And it's presumably it's one that's been given to Damon Albarn, who's in a taxi in, in Japan. And that's yeah. early as well, isn't it? Early, yeah, early it days, is. yeah. Yeah, we conscious we, choice of yours to to keep the the union flag out of the images. It was actually, yeah, and I think um, the picture that I used of of, da of Damon with the flag was um, it was in in Tokyo, and um, a Japanese magazine wanted to photograph them with flags for it and they didn't really want to do it they felt quite uncomfortable standing in Tokyo waving union flags so um, he then got a load of Japanese schoolgirls to turn up for the shoot and got them to stand behind them waving flags so I think Damon thought maybe it was easier just to hold one of these small they're almost like sandcastle flags yeah they're quite small and uh, he still had it when we were on the way to the gig and he was uh, waving it out of the window at some fans and uh, I got a picture and it's a black and white shot. I've not used it in colour. Um, like you say, I've, I've, I mean, I, I, I have a problem, obviously, with, with flag waving. It's always nationalistic and it's always the domain of the right, generally. And... Um, I think the last person to use it successfully were the Who and look how they turned out. 
<laughs> I mean, you know, you deal with. I mean, iconography is kind of your business, isn't it? Is it is it reclaimable in your view? The the union flag, and and you know, I know. You know, look, full full disclosure, Kevin and I are, are, are old friends, and um, the, uh, you're a you're a member of the Labour Party. How do you feel when Keir Starmer is talking about Labour Labour having to reclaim patriotism? I've left the Labour Party because of Keir Starmer, so <laughs> um, I don't need to answer that anymore. He's no, it's no longer my concern. Um, he sold the Labour Party down the river, but that's a different story. Um, away from that, on, after that bombshell. <laughs> on that bombshell, indeed. When you, I mean, when you see these people that you've, that you have photographed so many times down the years, when you see Ian Brown saying that masks are a hoax and it's all a government <clears throat> conspiracy and you see John Lydon and, you know, I, I know you took photographs of the Sex Pistols in 1976 and he's wearing a Make America Great Again t-shirt and obviously you've taken a lot of pictures of Morrissey over the years um, when you were when you were based in Manchester and then when they moved to London. How, how does how does that make you feel? Um, well, I've never actually voted for a party because of who a musician likes. Um, I think a lot of musicians are quite removed from reality, shall we say. And I, you know, if, um, you know, if... Uh, some bloke who's in the red hot chili peppers says vote for someone or other it wouldn't really alter my views i i mean musicians say ridiculous things and quite rightly that's their job i think they're meant to provoke but i do feel that um I don't know. I think some of them smoke too much weed, maybe. <laughs> Do you think it becomes a bit more uncomfortable when they've got a few years under their belt? Because um, I get the feeling with with Morrissey, and I've been a huge Mr. Morrissey fan for a long time, I, I, you know, not the latest stuff, um, but it, it just seems like Morrissey would disagree with you if you said black was white. You know, he's just trying to be a contrarian, and I get that feeling from... John Lydon as well. Is it just uh, we've been, you know, we at the age of twenty-one when I became famous, it was because there was a, a an element of of the rebel in there, and that's just carried on as I've lost all, you know, lost relevance and also lost touch with reality. I don't know. I think it all gets a bit last of the summer wine, really. Doesn't it? <laughs> um, I think you know they're just blokes sitting around, older blokes sitting around in pubs talking crap, really. You know, well, you made them look, you've made them look good. Weatherspoons, um, probably. <laughs> probably, yeah. um, is, Who, who is, is your favourite? I mean, it is sad. It is sad, but I, I, there, is, I, there, is, there are a few bigger fans of The Fall than me, but I, I, and it, it's a bit tragic circumstances, but I did find myself thinking the other morning that I was quite glad not to have had you know, Mark, that Marquis Smith wasn't around to share his views on, on COVID-19 and, and mask wearing and all of that kind of stuff. It's more of us as fans, though, isn't it? It's more, it's more about yeah. us as fans, really, because we've invested in these people and we expect that if we met them that we would be great pals with them and they would agree with us. And the reality is... Do you is... ever really think that? 
Well, I think well, I think people do. I'll tell you a quick story. I, I was a massive Morrissey fan, and he was spotted in a pub around the corner from where I used to live. And the person rang me and said, right, Morrissey's here now. He seems like he's in a good mood. Here's your chance. I put my coat on, took one foot out of the door, and went, do you know what? This is a really bad idea, because this will ruin the music for me, potentially, mm-hmm. if he's a complete, you know, arsehole, which we all know he has the propensity to be. So, you know... I think, it, uh, you know, perhaps never meet your heroes and just uh, keep listening to their music and don't pay too much attention to their political views. Well, yeah, I mean, it's the same with writers, isn't it? I mean, I, you know, much as I might like James Elroy, I'm not going to ring him up and say, who do you think I should vote for at the next <laughs> election? <laughs> this is true. Who who has been who who have you enjoyed photographing the most? And I don't necessarily mean because you had the most fun with them, but just because you maybe got the best pictures. Uh, Morrissey really. Morrissey yeah. was great, and Bowie was great actually. I I mean I I grew up when I was a teenager. I was I really idolised Bowie. Bowie and Man City were like the two things I absolutely loved. And the first time I I, I photographed Bowie when I was at art school live uh, during Ziggy Stardust tour and then when I was um, when I finally got to photograph Bowie when he was doing the Tin Machine project I was so nervous uh, because I'd had his picture on my wall that I was unable to tell him he was wearing a really terrible jacket and I did all these photos thinking we're never going to use these pictures because that jacket looks so awful um, and I was hamstrung by the fact that he was my teen idol, really. Yeah. Um, and then I got, I, you know, I, I, I was in the depths of just despondency. I'd take about 10 rolls of film and I knew I couldn't use any of them. And I asked him if I could come and watch them rehearse for a bit. And he let me, and he got changed into a plaid shirt and jeans and he was more relaxed. And I was, and I took some pictures and, the rehearsal room and then I kind of and he sat on the edge of the drum riser and had a cigarette and I took a picture and he kind of looked over I wasn't sure if I was supposed to take pictures by then and he looked over at me and raised an eyebrow and I took another one and then I knew I'd got the cover shot that I needed for the enemy and um, after that I photographed him several times and uh, it was great I'd kind of got over that nervousness so Bowie, Morrissey was great because he was very collaborative. He always had lots of ideas. Um, he understood the power of the image, didn't he, even from, from day dot, pretty much. Yeah, absolutely. And so did the Manic Street Preachers because they'd grown up loving the music press, so much so that when they were doing their first NME cover with me, um, they went out the night before and asked girls to give them love bites in this nightclub so that they'd look even trashier for their cover, because it had to be just right. You it know, worked for it, me, that one. <laughs> you know, so uh, you can always say you're going on the cover of the anime. If you <laughs> yeah, they definitely if not we ever go to now. a club again. <laughs> yeah. Can you just bite my neck? I'm going to be on the cover of the anime. Today. Yeah, I'm Ed Sheeran. <laughs> um, uh, when you, I mean, you talk about seeing Bowie live in, in, in Manchester in the 70s, and obviously we, we mentioned that you took photos at the... Was it the Sex Pistols' last UK gig? Yeah, Huddersfield on Christmas Day, 77. 77, yeah. And, I mean, what do you think is the... What do you think the future is for 
the the music industry is completely different clearly from from when you were working but you know musicians nowadays if you, unless you're incredibly fortunate and successful your main source of income is is live gigs isn't it what 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 do you think is is the future for for this i don't know i mean morrissey's morrissey has got um um masks on his website so he might not agree with them but he's flogging them so maybe maybe that's the future um i don't know really i think it's really difficult who knows when we're ever going to be able to go to a gig again but i think um you know once if ever covid disappears there's going to be an almighty party i think that might last for about six months let's hope so <laughs> let's hope so should we go to it uh, yeah, I thought I'm gonna. Hope, I was hoping you'd organise it. Yeah, I think I might. Yeah. I think I might organise it. I will make sure that you've got a. Uh, make sure that you've got an invite. Can I have a thanks photo for, pass for it. Thanks for Triple coming a, on. I think <laughs> it's a great book, Kevin. Thank you. It's um, a wonderful book. Is it? Is it? Uh, it is available now because I know one of my good friends has already got it. He's already taken delivery. So yeah, um, it came out. It came out last week, and it's selling very well because. People have got nothing to do in lockdown, but look at my book. So it's quite fortuitous. Well, while we were getting high, Britpop and the 90s by Kevin Cummings has got my absolute full endorsement. It is a wonderful piece. I know I'm really sounding like an ass kiss, but it is, it's fantastic. There's some absolutely stunning images and some really good interviews in there. Kevin, an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, it's, it's, um, it's a great book and it's been a great chat. So thank you very much. Cheers, thanks a lot. See you soon. Yeah, bye. That was Kevin. Kevin. That was Kevin. What a superstar. What a superstar. Um, he's, yeah. absolute, he's absolutely right, you know. I mean, we 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 used to go to this pub before Man City games, which is which is sort of how I know Kevin really through 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 uh, both following Manchester City and um and the second Oasis album had come out, which is called What's the Story? Morning Glory, isn't it? And and he said, what have you, I think we were walking to the pub after the game, and he said, well, have you heard the, this album? It had, it had come out like that week. Mm. And um, and I said, have you, he said, have you heard it? And I said, yeah, you know, I think it's a bit sort of by the numbers. It's not as good as the first one. And he said, wait till we get in the, in the pub. And um, as he mentioned there, people put the whole album on. The, the album was on the jukebox. People put the whole album on, and they knew all the words to all yeah. the songs. And yeah. this was on the Saturday, um, uh, the Saturday or the Sunday, and the album albums used to come out on Thursday, I think. It was absolutely amazing, and you knew that it was going to be huge. I mean, the um, truth of the matter is, of course, that it isn't as good as Definitely Maybe by a long chalk. Definitely well, I don't maybe like is, it as much, no. Definitely Maybe is Oasis's real masterpiece but what they did with with what's the story was get everyone singing in the pubs every saturday night you know everyone was singing don't look back in anger i I remember i remember going into my local and my mother came in at like half past seven she was singing along with don't look back in anger you know it, it went beyond just the people who read the enemy the people who'd been at the early gigs the people who liked definitely maybe didn't it went well, supersonic. There you go. That's a nice little way to round off our chat about Oasis. Absolutely. Um, less than supersonic is <laughs> is what a segue is is um, is what is going on in um, 
in Brexit this week. Uh, European Commission president has sent a letter of notice to the government. It's the first step in infringement proceedings uh, over the Internal Market Bill, which is obviously designed to override aspects of the withdrawal agreement. Um, some people are saying, well, this is a good sign. It shows that the... Um, it shows that the EU are, you know, they've given us a month to sort it out. That shows that, you know, it's not no deal. is 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 uh, It's not a formality. It means that they're still willing to negotiate. Maybe there is a little bit of give and take um, happening. But, you know, this week we've had a lot of bad news, haven't we? Um, we've had um, stuff coming out of... Uh, the committee that Hillary Benn chairs. We've had uh, the head of the aerospace trade organisation saying, whatever happens now, we will be involved in a day-to-day struggle to ensure the goods that we need to see flowing across our borders. We have heard about big extra costs. We've heard about red tape. We've heard about a shortage of chemicals. We've, We've heard about the chemical industry potentially having to pay a billion pounds to uh, to clear up um, red tape. We've heard about medicine not being able to make it to Northern Ireland. Uh, we've heard about um, the EU slapping down a request from David Frost um, that uh, they basically said, well, can we count car parts that we import from Japan and Turkey as British so we can easily export them to the, um, to the EU uh, after the transition period ends and the eu have said unsurprisingly no you can't you know they we have to make sure that those parts are uh safe and meet our standards and you can't just count them as british just because the british are importing them so i mean it is it is uh these are strange times aren't they how do you how do you feel this 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 week has gone for for brexit and the government well imagine how imagine my my, uh, you know, on, on, on Monday as I walked to a brand new week, knowing that it was another crunch week in the Brexit negotiations, but feeling confident because Michael Gove was going to be on hand to sort all this out. Um, no, no, the minutiae of this is extraordinarily complicated, um, and that is the case with any any trade deal, obviously. But um, I just feel so tired steve and so depressed about how we've got ourselves into this position rather than anything else you know there was some stuff coming out the weekend oh you know there's some whispers that the eu is maybe a bit more friendly this week could be the week that sort of thing and that was coming from from london and we the EU then was sort of whispering, well, they're saying that isn't true. They're just saying it to, you know, so it's good optics for this week, et cetera, et cetera. And I just, I just can't believe that anyone, that, that either side can, could even be contemplating, and it is, of course, the UK that's, that's pushed this, but could be contemplating not having a deal. Um, and, uh, and and uh, so not, for me, very little has changed. Actually, my perception is still one of despair and depression about how we've handled this pretty much from pretty much from the moment Theresa May gave that speech and caved into the right of her party and painted herself right into a corner when when she should have said um, when she took things off the table 
and when she actually should have said, you know, everything's on the table, it's time to negotiate, and we will we'll do it in the with the very best spirit we can. From that moment on, this whole thing has been doomed, and it's just got worse and worse and less and less likely as it's gone on. Um, if it happens at the eleventh hour, I, there will be no one happier than me. But uh, with every week, especially crunch weeks like this one, with everyone that goes past, I just get closer and closer to thinking that, um, you know, that that cliff edge, we're going to be. Well, we're, dri- we're driving over it. Mm, they are they are dark times, aren't they? I've um, I've looked back in my column for the the new European print edition this week, and it's also this is a piece that actually seems to be doing quite well online as well. I was I've seen it shared double figures uh, in your reader I'm, figures. Well, let's not get giddy. It, it <laughs> near double figures, but it's it was it's been shared quite. I was I, I was pleasantly surprised to see it shared into my timeline by somebody else the other day um which was very you like this steve (laughs) Uh, yeah i will like it yeah i think it's hilarious um but i thought i would look back at project fear um not at the sort of guff that george osborne threw out when he'd seen some polls which made it clear that he was going to lose his cushy job um and then have to get another six cushy jobs but the not that all all that stuff but but i thought i would look at the do you remember the leaflet that the government sent to every home and it was titled why the government believes that voting to remain very controversial wasn't it at the time because it was was because paid paid for with taxpayers money it was paid for with taxpayers money it's actually quite a mild document uh it makes a lot of of course famously it says this is a once in a generation uh vote and the government will implement what you say um which has led to uh much bother um but it says some incredible incredibly sensible things uh if the uk voted to leave the eu the economic shock will put pressure on the value of the pound that's happened uh losing full access to the single market will make export into europe harder and it will increase costs and when we see our warnings of these lorry queues and we hear about 29 new lorry parks in england and we hear about the billion pound cost of um of uh, red tape to clear up uh, chemical imports and and we think about lorry drivers having to pay 300 quid each to have access to kent that's clearly going to happen um there's stuff uh, in there about losing uh your right to free health care when you go to the eu through the e-hit card that mobile phone roaming charges might come back in that the pet passport will go all of this stuff is 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 going to happen um, that we will lose access to, you know, uh, EU um, databases, police databases, fingerprint information, DNA information, uh, the European arrest warrant. All of this stuff is going to go in uh, in a no deal scenario. So so check out the piece, um, and um, check out the piece. It, it does end. Uh, the, the it the does end. <laughs> the government leaflet. The piece does end. The government leaflet ends saying. The government judges it could result in 10 years or more of uncertainty as the UK unpicks our relationship with the EU and renegotiates new arrangements with the EU and over 50 other countries around the world. Some argue we could strike a good deal quickly with the EU because they want to keep access to our market. The government's judgment is that it would be much harder than that. And I will leave you, dear New European podcast listener, to speculate on whether you think that that is 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 true or not we're halfway through the decade and there's you know what we've done a deal with japan that's worth less than one percent of um 
our GDP, it's going to increase our GDP by less than 1%. So, uh, in fact, it's 0.07%, isn't it? Not anywhere near 1%. It's the boost. So, what's next? Uh, well, I think we should hand over to Matt Withers, who's talking to uh, Deborah Mattinson. And Deborah Mattinson is um, the founder, director of... Uh, Britain Thinks, which is a, a, a research and strategy consultancy. And um, moron. Yes. <laughs> and she's uh, she's got a new book out. It's a book of Britpop photos. No, it isn't. Um, <laughs> called uh, Beyond the Red Wall, Why Labour Lost, Labour Lost, Why Labour Lost, How the Conservatives Won and What Will Happen Next. From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant. Hello, Matt Withers here, and this week I'm joined by pollster Deborah Mattinson, author of a new book on Labour's Red Wall. Deborah, how are you doing? I'm fine, thank you, Matt. Um, first question I have to ask. Um, I've spoken to a couple of Labour MPs um, recently who wonder where the name Red Wall has come from. It seems to be a, a relatively new thing. Maybe you can tell me different. Yes, I can. And it, and it is a relatively new thing. Um, I, in fact, I, I write about this in the opening to the book because I first heard of the expression uh, in the very early autumn of 2019. And uh, it was Rachel Sylvester, actually, the Times columnist, who said to me she'd been chatting to some Tory um, contacts and they'd said oh everybody's going for this red wall and she explained to me what it was by the way as an aside I was quite skeptical about whether or not the Conservatives could ever win it but park that for the moment we can come back to it um, but uh, actually I then sort of set about to understand where it had come from and I discovered that the idea the concept had been invented by a Conservative strategist called James Canicosaurium who had basically been number crunching and had came up with this idea. He suddenly noticed a bunch of long-held Labour seats and he noticed that attitudinally they were not very Labour in lots of ways. And he came to the conclusion, as he put it, that the Tories were underperforming in those seats. When he mapped them out and put them together, he could see that they formed this sort of I mean, it's, it's, a loose, it's a loose description, but a sort of wall that, you know, stretched up from the Midlands up to the northeast, round, across to the northwest, into Wales. And he called it the Red Wall. But the idea of walls as physical barriers, obviously, is a very, very old one. Um, and, and it's also, you know, been used as a meta for many times. So you've um, spoken there of how the Tories won it. Um, it would seem to me... and do correct me, a combination of Brexit and also they thought that the values that Labour were espousing under Jeremy Corbyn or perhaps even before that were not their values. Is that fair? It's fair and it's both of those things, but it's much, much more than that. And again, I, you know, I try to sort of spell this out in the book because I feel for Labour, this was a car crash, a slow car crash that had been really a long time coming. And in a way, it became a perfect storm where you had Brexit, you had, um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, who sort of turbocharged a lot of their dissatisfaction with Labour. But that dissatisfaction had been building for a long time. Um, that's a group of people who felt very neglected by, by Westminster, by mainstream politi politics and politicians. They had seen their areas decline. 
um, you know, these are old industrial areas with, you know, collieries and, and industries like the potteries, like the railways in Darlington, at the Norrie Brick in Accrington. They'd seen them decline over a long time on Labour's watch. And they felt that Lab the Labour Party had moved away from them and was now peopled by, as, as one person put it to me, sort of snooty graduates from London, um, people who looked down on them and looked down on the things that they believed in. So it was a sort of perfect storm of which Brexit um, and Corbyn were the final bits of the jigsaw puzzle, but they didn't start it. There's an article by you in the New European on sale now uh, in all good shops and well worth a read. Um, I thought it's very interesting that the, the people that you spoke to are incredibly enthusiastic about Brexit and the, the benefits that they think it will bring to their lives and communities without having a kind of tangible idea of how that will do so. Yes, I think that's right. I, you know, I spell this out in the article and obviously there's a lot, lot of detail in the book, but basically expectations are high, but as you say, quite sort of blurry in a way, but there is a feeling that a lot of the sort of, uh, you know, a lot of the grief that they have about the loss of uh, the things they're most proud of in their area will somehow be restored. There's this sense that we've been sending money to Europe and it's money that could have been spent you know, in their local area. So for instance, Ken, who was a retired butcher in Oswald Twistle, which is in the Hindburn constituency, told me that, you know, for the first time in ages, he felt really optimistic about his grandkids' future. And he said, you know, we used to have the best of engineering, agriculture, fishing, and now that we can set our own rules, we will again. Now he didn't have a very clear account of how that was going to happen, but he felt fairly sure that it would happen. That, and that kind of brings me on to a really key question. I wonder, at what point, or if that point will come, where the voters that don't see those benefits start to question what they were promised? Or was, for some people, would just the act of leaving the EU be enough? I think the act of leaving the EU will be a symbolic positive for, uh, for, the, for the people that I spoke to. And in fact, interestingly, just this week, I have gone back to some of the people that I interviewed much earlier this year, sort of pre-COVID, and asked them if they still felt that Brexit was as much of a priority as they had done then, or if, if you know, coronavirus had changed anything. And they were pretty adamant that they still wanted it to go ahead, that they would be very disappointed if it didn't. Um, and as I say, they've got high expectations. Now, I think in a way, coronavirus cuts the government a bit of slack because they're very aware of how much, you know, managing the crisis is costing the country and how, you know, resources may need to be spread around slightly differently but in the end they do have high expectations and I think that by the time we get to the next government if they haven't seen you know funds being redistributed in their favour then they are going to feel let down. You talk in the in the article um, and, and book of um, Boris Johnson de-snobbifying the, the Tories. Did voters see him as one of their own or did they understand that he led a relatively gilded existence, but nevertheless understood them in their communities? I think it's the latter rather than the former. I mean, obviously, they know that he's very posh, but then they kind of think most politicians are very posh. And for instance, they would, it would be very nuanced, the difference between him and Keir Starmer. Um, you know, you might look at Keir Starmer and say, well, he's a self-made man, comes from a modest background. But in the end, they both are very posh men, so far as most, you know, voters in, in red wall seats are concerned. So what Boris Johnson did, I think, was he, he managed to 
encouraged them. He gave them a license to look at the brand again. And yeah, as, as one person said, he desnobified it because his own personal manner, you know, the slightly chaotic, the scruffy hair, the, it said to them that he was very authentic, that he was his own person. Um, and they felt that he really understood them. And, you know, his passion for Brexit, the clarity with which he made those promises during the election, get Brexit done, seemed to them very appealing. Um, is Keir Starmer making the right mood music by being willing to talk about patriotism? Is that an important start for him, do you think? I think it's incredibly important. Um, I mean, I really did come to the conclusion that, you know, if you don't love uh, the, your country, the Red Wall will never love you. Um, and I think that's been, you know, there were, there were many failings in the you know, past Labour administration, um, but, but one of them, and, and, and you know, in, in opposition, but one of the biggest ones was the sense that Labour did not embrace patriotism. So that really mattered. I think that Keir Starmer has done several things. He's, you know, made himself seem very different from Jeremy Corbyn. He seems competent, which is an appealing thought when we're in the middle of a crisis. Um, Yes, it's the right mood music. The problem he's got is actually getting that across and conveying it at a time when it's even more difficult than usual for the leader of opposition to, you know, to kind of cut through. It's really hard, um, you know, because basically there aren't many opportunities. You know, his, his, his virtual conference speech, I don't think it even made the news at 10. It definitely didn't make Newsnight. It didn't make many, didn't make any front pages, I think. You know, it's sort of, it's very hard for him to get that message across. Well, thanks for that, Deborah. And people can read that article in this week's New European on sale now, or indeed buy her book, Beyond the Red Wall, published by Biteback, or uh, why not do both? Brilliant. OK, really appreciate thanks that. Brexiteer of the Week. Welcome back, Steve. The crown of Brexiteer of the Week. Well, it's it's always as ever. It's hard to choose, isn't it? I mean, Pretty Patel and her wave machine in in in, in any other in any other week would have would have you know sailed away with Brexit. I mean, I know this particular wave machine was inhuman, immoral, and potentially murderous. But I love a wave machine in a swimming pool, don't you? Yes, I very much I, I very oh. much do. Um, does Wayne sort of seem to be saying? Pubs could should individual pubs should just make up their own rules about <laughs> safety this week um, yeah. and uh, yeah you know it's 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 extraordinary um, I tell you what is extraordinary a regular uh, entrant on into the Brexiteers of the week is Anne Widdicombe a lack a lack uh, and do you know when you're watching a TV show and at the end it says if you've been affected by any of the issues in these raised in this program, you can ring this number or you can go to this website and download this fact sheet and all of that. And that I'm happens. aware of that. Yes. Now, Anne Widdicombe has been what this is nothing to do with Brexit, by the way, but I just thought I would, would put it in. Anne Widdicombe has been watching David Tennant in Des playing Dennis Nielsen, the, yeah. the, the serial killer and her key takeaway from, well, let's see whether you can pick up, on what her key takeaway is from this. It was a three-episode television feast, wasn't it? Uh, And this is her writing in the Daily Express. Uh, The portrait of Nielsen by David Tennant could not realistically have been as a non-smoker. It was a different age where there was a whole etiquette around facilitating smoking, from the supply of ashtrays for guests to urging your guests to smoke from the host cigarette box rather than their own cigarette case. There you go. I think of all the issues raised 
in in um, in the uh, in the in the series the mini series Des. I think that the the you know smoking in the nineteen eighties uh, was probably my key takeaway from it as well. Extraordinary. Um, it's great. I, I, do you remember that? I don't think. Well, you uh, you probably don't remember. You were, how old were you at the end of the nineteen eighties? Ten. Ten. Okay. Well, I was. How old was I at the end of the nineteen eighties? Oh, God, it's depressing to, <laughs> depressing to think but anyway i can tell you now that um by the end of the 1980s there were not many you know when you went round to somebody's house after the pub they didn't pass their own cigarette box round to you uh, and tell you to put your own cigarette case away uh with, even whether they were a serial killer or not uh, james dyson is a brexiteer of the week he has uh, it's been revealed that in the last year he hoovered up £3.7 million worth of farming subsidies from the EU, uh, despite not liking the EU. Uh, he doesn't like they, the term hoovered either. So. <laughs> I know, that's why I mentioned it. Uh, that means payouts to his agricultural firm, Beeswax Dyson, uh, have reached £8.7 million since 2016, when, of course, he advised his fellow farmers to vote leave in the 2016 referendum. James Dyson, the biggest... Uh, private farmer in the, the UK, isn't he? Um, although he obviously has to do his farming from Singapore now or wherever it is. Um, he admitted last week that smaller farmers would face financial difficulty when the subsidies vanished after Brexit. Um, but he said that farmers will have to be a lot more efficient to survive. Um, alternatively, since he's worth 16 billion quid, it would really not make a dent in that if he shared that 8.7 million that he's taken off the EU. Uh, which he doesn't like, with those in the agricultural sector who are less fortunate than themselves. And um, of the three billion in farming subsidies that are paid out by the EU to UK farmers every year, um, the top 10% of recipients receive more than half the cash, um, which is, I mean, the same as it ever was, isn't it? But, you know, these people are going to suffer. Um, mm. um, and it's, it's again, I mean, it's a, I know they've, you know, I know that farmers voted were told by the nfu weren't they you should really vote remain that you know the research shows that farmers went heavily for leave what for whatever reason you know it's it's a tragedy for those people what is about to happen to them steve baker the perma smug former leader of the european research group uh i don't know if you saw his interview with times radio he was talking about boris johnson and he went all tol all tolkien he went all sort of mystic and he said, many of us will have seen Lord of the Rings. Theoden the king is under the spell of his advisors. He has to be woken up from that spell. When he wakes up from that spell, joy comes to pass in his kingdom. And when Theoden awakes, and I mean Boris, everything will come right. Oh. <laughs> um, I wonder what all of that means, other than, you know, I don't know. What, what does it mean? I mean, I think it's a fairly... You know, it's a fairly um, heavy, sort of heavily obvious metaphor, isn't it? Um, I did want to remind Steve Baker that, you know, Theoden, it doesn't turn out well for him, does it? He gets crushed to death after, under his own horse um, not long after that. And apparently um, he was based on King Theoderic I of the Visigoths, and he was he fell off his horse during a battle and then was trampled to death by his own men during a oh. charge, which I think is probably closer to the fate that will soon await Boris Johnson. Um, Aaron, Banks, well, let's hope let's hope nobody nobody dies. But also, I, there's there's another I've just thought, and with this metaphor, because Dominic Cummings, 
yes. has a very strong similarity, physical likeness to another character in Lord of the Rings, doesn't he? Well, he's a, he's he's a bit Gollumish, isn't yeah, he? And yeah. um, my precious. I think we can all remember the amazing moment in um, the Lord of the Rings trilogy when Gollum's. Remember when Gollum's eyesight was fading, and he had to. He took went on that journey to the the, the, the optician, the great optician at the perilous Castle Barnard, um, and uh, what a, what a moment that was! And then his eyes were all right. So yeah, it was a, indeed. Uh, Aaron Banks is a Brexiteer of the week. He, Obviously. I mean, his campaign to get New Zealand first elected in the New Zealand um, general election on Saturday, October the 17th, is going really well. Uh, I don't know if you noticed this. He, When he signed on to help New Zealand first, which is run by a bloke called Winston Peters, he's the Deputy Prime Minister of um, New Zealand. He's in a coalition. His party is a far-right, grumbly party. Um and uh, when Aaron Banks signed on, he said, "My our goal is to get New Zealand's first um, vote vote share up to about thirteen percent." He said, "We're aiming as high as thirteen percent in the general election. I think they got about five percent last time, and um, it's going well for him because the latest poll shows that the Labour Party, the ruling Labour Party, Jacinda Ardern, they're on forty-seven percent." And um, New Zealand first are, are doing really well. They're on, they're on one percent. One, one percent down from eight percent last November. He's got. I, says, I, I suppose he, Aaron Banks, could say, "I was aiming for thirteen percent, and I've got the first digit. I've got the one. <laughs> We're halfway there, to, boys. I just need to work on the three. But the Brexiteer of the week is Frederick Forsyth. Yeah, uh, he's seventy-five. He's a novelist. He wrote The Day of the Jackal, one of the greatest ever thrillers. He's appeared in this um, in this um, section many times before. I'm not sure he's actually ever been the Brexiteer of the Week no. before. He again, like Anne Widdicombe, a lack. He writes for the Daily Express. His column this week is about trade talks with the EU. And he wrote, once again, as with COVID, uh, media and the people have been mesmerised by a single phrase, no deal. But this is deceptive. Whatever happens, there will be a trading relationship between us, i.e. a deal. But it may be under World Trading Organization rules. So what he is saying is that no deal is actually a deal, which is great, isn't it? Yeah. Do you remember when... um, Do you remember when Man United tried to sign Alan Shearer and then Newcastle... Yeah, does that mean that Alan Shearer really signed for for Man? There actually was a deal, and he actually well, he actually he really signed for him twice because he really signed for him when they tried to buy him when Blackburn bought him, and then oh, the yeah. and then the and then again when Newcastle bought him. On both occasions, he he That's signed right. for Man United. Stephen Gerrard obviously played for Chelsea, and yeah. you know the 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 Deco signed the Beatles. And when yeah. they become the greatest uh, factory signed the Smiths. It's fantastic, isn't it? I can't believe that no deal is actually a deal um, yeah. all along. And you do have to wonder why there's been so much bother between Israel and Palestine down the years, when obviously they've had a peace deal all along. If 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 only Frederick Forsyth had been there to tell them. So um, so no deal is actually a deal, and Brexit uh, Brexiteer of the week is is Frederick Forsyth. Congratulations, Mr. Forsyth. You are our Brexiteer of the Week. Keep up the good work. Um, 
Hey, listen, do you know how influential this podcast is? Yes, it's deeply influential. <laughs> deeply influential. This podcast is listened to in the corridors of power and beyond, let me tell you. And if proof were needed, we've just been tweeted, Steve, by a listener called Far Far Away From Here at Cologne Tastic and Cologne is Tastic. Um, which reads, now even Sadiq Khan is calling Matt Hancock Mancock. Supposedly no. there's been a slip-up on uh, LVC <laughs> while oh, we've been recording, oh. and Sadiq Khan has been calling him Hat Mancock. So that's great. You see, we're really getting into the heads of these people. That's um, amazing. And and also, I have got a, I've got a, a, a message, and I can't see who it's from. Oh, no. Um, but I've got a message saying that the Boris for PM thing yeah. is still there, as well as Primeval uh, uh, screaming won't help. He says the Boris A-frame is still there, but you could, on one side it's been ripped off, so you can only see it when you're moving away from East Anglia, and uh, and maybe I'll, I'll check that out. But, uh, but well, Boris on the other it. direction we can check that out, but two sides of the same A-frame, those things certainly are. <laughs> Screaming won't help. <laughs> uh, what should the listener do right now, Steve? The listener right now should uh, go to uh, the neweuropean.co.uk and check out our amazing new website. It is super fast. It's so much better than before. There is much less advertising clutter uh, than there used to be. Um, it is a really great job by the people who have put that um, together. Um, if you love this podcast, uh, and we love doing it, please subscribe to it and leave us a, a lovely review on your podcatcher of choice. Uh, the New European print edition goes from strength to strength. Jasper Copping is the editor of that. Um, the, this week's issue has got uh, the Boris uh, Broadcasting Corporation on the front, two great pieces by Liz Gerard, Peter York, um we've got simon barnes in there we've got kevin cummins in there we've got deborah mattinson in there we've got some quite controversial stuff um questioning whether um europe is a cruel continent as well um check it out the print edition of the new european if you go to our website you can get 13 issues for 13 pounds for new subscribers and go to tneshop.co.uk as well. We've got all manner of new European merch, including face masks with the European flag and with rejoin on. You can join our Facebook readers group. You can just follow us on Facebook uh, and on Twitter. We are at the new European and I am at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. And I am at Porritt, P-O-R-R-R. I double T. Um, well, another another cracking episode is in the book, Steve. Um, thank you to you. Thank you to Matt Withers, who is not only our our man uh, on the ground doing the interviews, but is also the man behind the scenes. Um, thank you to Deborah Mattinson, and of course, thank you to Kevin Cummings, whose excellent book is out now. We will be back next week. Until then, Mr. Campbell. Play your bagpipes. Here you go.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.